to the first candle of, of Advent. Traditionally, I was, I was just Googling, because I didn't grow up in a really liturgical church. I grew up in a liberal congregational church and then was saved into a Baptist church. So I really wasn't familiar with that till, till I went to my first church and they did this and it was kind of thinking, okay, so what is this? So I Googled this week at long last, where did this start? And what are these candles supposed to mean? Every year we kind of pick a theme, but it says traditionally the first week, the first candle is the prophet's candle. And so, yeah, we read this, we read this scripture out of numbers that just anticipates Jesus is coming and just seems to be such, a, such an unknown prophecy about him. I see him, but not now. I love that line. And that he's coming, and he, even though he seems out of view now. So just the prophecy that, that speak about the Lord Jesus. And other years, we've kind of chased that kind of stepping stone from the Old Testament prophets and what they said to build the way to the birth of Jesus. And we know the virgin will conceive. We know it'll be Bethlehem. We know all those things. And so we followed that and we're blessed by that. But I felt like this year, just looking at that prophecy, there was something that God wanted us to step back and really absorb by what he's saying in that. Because he is the God of prophecy. Several verses, he just talks about himself as, as the one who oversees history and prophecy. It says in Isaiah, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I'm God and there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Hey, there's no one else like me, God says, who knows and who orchestrates and, and is designing what's, what's going to be, what's been and what's going to be. In Romans, when Paul is writing them and looking at the life and ministry of Jesus, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. Then he talks about the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That, that when he's writing to the center of the empire at that time, one of the things he lets them know is that this Jesus that we're worshiping, the prophets have been talking about him for a long time. And so here he is, this God of prophecy. We worship him in that way. It struck me while the team was leading us in these songs, you know, we're singing, you know, about God being the beginning and the end and knowing all these things. And it just struck me, God, I am so glad you are not going to run out, you know, that in whatever, 20,000 years, we're not going to find out. We got to come up with someone else because he's done. That he just goes eternally. That's nothing you ever, ever, ever have to worry about him running out or him changing. That's what he keeps telling us in the scriptures for us. And so here, here he is in, in scripture and here it is in, at the very beginning. And one of the things that I want us to hear from him, I want to hear what is he saying to us through all these prophes prophecies that he makes? Prophecies he makes about Jesus, but then about the whole plan of, for saving, for our future, for all of those things. What is God saying? Apart from the little particulars, what's the big message that he's giving to us? And I want to start in Genesis chapter 3, which is where prophecy begins. Prophecy about Jesus, about his life, about his death, about his resurrection. I was reading, actually I found it in a couple places this week, that said if you just took eight of the prophecies about Jesus and tried to figure out the likelihood of one person fulfilling eight, just eight of his prophecies, they calculated out that it would be 10 to the 17th power, which is way, way beyond. I think my brain blows up at about 10 to the, 10 to the third power, which is what, billions or whatever. I just alienated all you math people. <laughs> but somebody, somebody makes it easier for someone like me and says, the likelihood of Jesus or of a person fulfilling eight of the prophecies about Jesus's life of just eight of them, and, and there's so many more, but fulfilling eight prophecies of his life, the likelihood of that would be filling the state of Texas with silver dollars, knee deep, blindfolding a man, and telling him to walk anywhere in Texas and pick up the one that they've marked with red. That's the likelihood of one person fulfilling eight. Then you just magnify that out, and here's the wonder of Jesus who appears on the scene in things that are out of his control, 
who his, who his mother's going to be, where he's going to be born. He's going to leave and fl- have to fly to Egypt as an infant. All of these things. So just the wonder of prophecy. And here we are at the very beginning in Genesis 3, which is one of the worst chapters in the Bible when everything goes from perfect to broken. And God shows up and finds out that Eve has taken from the, from the fruit of the tree and Adam has joined right in on that and, and not hesitated. And the serpent has led them into that. And so God shows up in verse 14 and he begins to just speak judgment over them. But judgment with, with a prophecy. It says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts in the field. Speaks to the present. And on your belly you shall go in the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now he's talking future tense. That's prophetic. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. That's prophetic, looking ahead. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in in pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That last line always confused me, but he's really telling her, you've broken down this relationship. You two have broken down what should have been a partnership, and now your desire is going to be to control your husband. And that's, that never works. Yeah. But prophetic, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. There's been no childbearing yet. In verse 17, he says to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Present. In pain, you shall, there's future, eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread, until you return to the ground out of which you were taken. For dust, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So it never dawned to me that the first prophecies in the Bible are right here when everything is broken down. And God is, is giving prophecy that, okay, here's some of how this judgment's going to roll out. Here's going to be the reality of how this broken world is going to work or not work because of what's happened here, because you rejected me. And here's the part of it that's going to give you hope because, because I'm a God who steps in and I, and I bring hope into it. So the prophecies about Jesus, the, uh, the prophecy that, that Jesus makes or about him says, is God saying to us, I am coming for you. That's one of the things we need to put together. With all these things, he says that Jesus is coming. Okay, that's good theologically to know that there's a Messiah who is coming. It's good to know that he's going to come and he's going to begin God's work of making everything that's broken whole and healed and right and forever again. But really, the message of the Bible that, that you need to hear, if any of this is going to make a difference, is when God says to you through all of these prophecies, I'm coming for you. That I'm, I'm coming in the midst of being rejected because that's really the message to God that you get in Genesis chapter three is that, is that we reject you, God. We'd rather be you than worship you. Which is really, whenever you decide, I'm not gonna, I don't think, God says that, but I don't think I'm gonna do it. You've just decided you'd rather be God than him. And that's kind of how Satan put it to Adam and Eve. You know, that God knows you'll be as smart as he is if you eat this fruit. That's why he doesn't want you to do that. He doesn't want anybody cringing on his territory or on his rule. And so they eat the fruit and they do. Now they do good and evil. And now they feel like they can make those decisions just like you and I feel like we can make those decisions. That may be wrong for you. I just don't feel like it's wrong for me. That's a God decision. That's a God voice. And so here in the garden, he's rejected. They reject him. And then when he shows up, all of that is laid out in the open and it's very clear to everybody, the serpent, God, and Adam and Eve, that this relationship is broken. And what happens now? Because who hasn't been in a relationship that's been broken or in a relationship where you've been rejected? Whether that relationship ended and you were rejected or whether, whether you just as a couple, you've had a moment or a season or a week and you just feel like you've been rejected or you just feel like you've been distanced. Who hasn't been in that moment or that situation? Those of you that, that have had to walk through divorce, you would experience that at a very deep level. And where does that go? Where does that leave you? I don't think I appreciate the question, how that had to be in Adam and Eve's mind at that point. Where does this leave us? You will certainly die. That was what God warned them about. And now they're living, but some of them are dying. They're living, but they're not alive with him because they've been separated from God. 
Remember it says in Ephesians, when you were dead in your sin, your trespasses in your sin, there's a part of you that was dead that God had to make alive even to connect with him. So where are we? Have you had one of those where you've been rejected, but you're kind of hopeful, and so you have that phone call or that text, or you have an awkward moment if you bump into each other, and where are we? Is this thing really over? Do we have another shot? Do we have another chance? I remember doing a terribly bad job of breaking up with a girl uh, as, a, as an idiot teenager. And so, yeah, I told her that we were kind of done. I did it in a really creative way, I thought. Uh, <laughs> I told, let me just say, I told Cindy about this when we were dating and stuff, and she just, her response to my creative, gentle approach was, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> so, yeah. But this girl says to me this very unfair thing I felt. She says, can we start up again? I thought, oh man, don't just, don't you get it? it? No. So I said that. I said, no. And what a terrible look in her eye. That's the danger, really, of being too young and getting in that whole dating thing. You see, you're not mature enough to, to really have somebody's heart in your hand. So here you are with God. Are we done? Are we done, done? Is this door locked? Or is there any chance of re-coming back through it? That's what prophecy answers. Prophecy answers that I'm coming for you. Which is really interesting because the next thing he does after he judges them, he makes, he makes a covering for them. They're ashamed. They notice that they're naked and they've lost the innocence of that. Just like our kids who run around the house naked, some of, the, some of them are just so innocent they have no clue and then they get older and they become aware. I think it was just that innocence that Adam and Eve lost. So God covers them. Then he says in verse 22, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east, end of, the, east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a faint flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So not only are we judge, is there judgment, they are out. They are out and the door is locked. You've got an angel there and you've got a flaming sword going back and forth to keep them from ever going in. But God does that. God does that for good. There are people, maybe some of you is part of your story. Maybe it is part of your story. Maybe it's some of the story of live stream. Maybe that's why you are live streaming because it's a lot safer to watch us at home and check out this gospel and this God than it is to be in the room. So there are people that wonder, what is God's heart towards me? Is the door shut? I kind of feel like he's pushed me away. I kind of feel like he's driven me out of the garden like Adam and Eve. But we miss his heart is good there. He understands they've eaten this tree. If they eat the tree of life, they're going to live forever in this broken condition. And that would make a bad thing worse. If you found out, if you found out that you were going to live forever, if I found out I was going to live forever, and I was going to increasingly have less hair and less strength and less good night's sleep and all of these things, that would be, that would be a bummer. Even if, you, even if you lived like they did in the early days, 800, 900 years, and you're having kids in your 600s, and you're going to work still in your 600s. Imagine that. I mean, just try to get your head around that, all of that goes. He's trying to prevent this from going on forever. Why is that? Because he wants to fix it. And then he wants to put forever on a good thing and not on a broken thing. So sometimes those things, we got to hear that. Sometimes when God's shutting the door, it seems like he's shutting a door, he's pushing you away from something, it's to keep it from getting worse. And we get so angry, you're so frustrated with him, but we miss it. It's a protective thing that he's doing. And in the midst of making us feel like we've been locked out, the, the message of prophecy is, no, I'm, I'm coming for you. Because in the midst of, of all of this that goes on, you know, you, childbirth, it's going to be painful. It's going to be painful now. And your relationship with your, your husband, where you should have had this partnership, you guys are going to be trying, you guys are going to be butting heads. 
now. And, and because, you know, because you've done this, your job was supposed to be something you, you loved going to every day. That's going to be gone because it's not going to be cooperative for you. So that's gone. And you're going to work hard and you're going to sweat hard and, and, and you're going to, you know, you're not going to enjoy work like you did, Adam. It's not going to be so easy anymore. And in the midst of all of that is this moment he shall, there'll be enmity, there'll be strife like we exist between you and the women, between her offspring and your offspring. There's this enmity now that we call spiritual warfare. But he will brush, bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Boy, I love the translation that says, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. In the midst of that is this prophecy that it's not always going to be this way. And that's the beginning of God's just saying to them, I'm coming for you. You have the Psalms, Psalm 8, that says, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him? When I, when I look at the history of man and what we've done to you, God, and then I look at the beauty of creation, who are we that you're even aware of us? But you are aware of us. Why is that? Because his heart is to come and to fix this and, and to rescue it. When God locks something, it's so that we don't, go, we don't go bad to worse. And so he has an opportunity to step in and to fix it. And so you get this first gospel. That's what someone calls this verse. He will bruise your head. You will, you will bruise his heel. It's the first hope of the gospel that we have, that something good is going to come out of this. And something good is, gonna, is going to fix all of this. And so when Jesus comes, he, he speaks to that and he understands that's who he is. And every prophecy that you read of is just affirming God is on his way to save his creation. This is a huge one. And I think I've only begun to appreciate this just putting together some of the things I've heard over the last week's people's stories, someone sharing the other night at our, at our uh, Thanksgiving service just some, some people that I've spoken to and working with, just how many of us struggle so much with this idea that you matter to God or that your life is worthwhile or that you're worth anything to people. That that's a, I'm appreciating more and more, that is a huge strategy, effective strategy that the evil one has on a lot of us. I really, I just don't matter. That I'm not as important as other people, or I guess I get treated this way because this is what I deserve. None of that is true. Here is the God of heaven who was rejected, who puts all of these prophecies in the Bible to say, I'm coming for you. Not other people, but I'm coming for you. And so through so much of the New Testament, you see the world, the world, whoever, all of those words, because he says, I'm coming for you. You gotta be able to receive that. God, it's hard for me to believe, but if that's what you say, I can receive that I have that much value to you. I think just as a little insecure teenager who is new to all this, just my, my first pastor, my home pastor, just one of his things he would say, I want to say he said it all the time, but maybe it was just so powerful to me that I felt like he said it all the time. He just kept saying, you are worth Jesus to God. What am I worth? I don't know. God thought you were worth Jesus. Can you receive that? However, however messed up your journey's been or however protected your journey's been, can you receive that God looked at you and said that you are worth Jesus? Because we're all about to go into the shopping mode and do that whole, how much is this person worth? You are worth Jesus to God. You're worth Jesus to God. So prophecy just says to you, hey, I'm, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. And so all these prophecies, you know, I, I Googled it in my Bible program, and I've got six pages of a chart of prophecies that just say, I'm coming for you. He'd be a, a son of Abraham. He'd be a tribe of the tribe of Judah. He'd be a prophet. He'd be cursed on the tree. He'd be on David's throne. He'd be called the son of God, that soldiers would cast lots for his clothes, that none of his bones would be broken, that he'd have false witnesses accuse him. He'd be betrayed by a friend. He'd, he'd rise from the dead. They'd give him gall and vinegar before he died, that he'd come in the name of the Lord, that 
Uh, that he would pray for his enemies, that he would be buried with the rich, that he would be crucified with sinners, that he would suffer in place of other people, that he'd be born of a king, that he would be born to a virgin, that he'd have to escape into Egypt, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, that he'd have a triumphal entry, that he'd be sold for pieces of silver, that they'd buy a field with, the, with that money, that his body would be pierced, that he'd have a forerunner go ahead of him, and that Elijah, that one that came ahead of him, be known as Elijah. That's just some of them. All of them say, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. Here's another piece of the puzzle, but I'm coming for you. That's what prophecy says. Prophecy also says, <clears throat> it also says, I'm coming for you, and I've got a plan. You know, you, you get water in your basement like we had, we had here a few weeks ago in a show on the street, as, as so many of you know. You have water in your basement. Your friend tells you, you, you know, if you're on the phone with a friend, they find out and they say, I'll be right over. So they come over. It's so good to have a friend, except all they have to offer you is emotional support. Oh, this is terrible. I, I, I feel so bad for you. Thank you. What, what are you going to do? I got to find a plumber. Oh, that's good. Hey, we got to go down there now and help. I, don't, I, I can't help. I don't know what I'm doing. I wore the wrong shoes. However that is. Have you had that person? I mean, their hearts are good. They bless you, but they're no help to you. You know, hey, I'm, I'm at the mall and my car broke down. I'll be right over. Good. What do you think's wrong? I don't know. I don't know. But I feel so bad for you. Do you have a car? Can I help you get home? No, I need to get my car fixed. I don't know anything about cars. That friend is great to have. You just wish at that time you had a skilled friend or you had a friend with a plan. So, you know, God can show up and we can, people all know, you know, most people know God is everywhere. He's always with you. But he's with you and he has a plan. He's got this plan, this end-all, fix-all, forever plan of how to make this right and, and how to fix this thing that was broken, how to enable you to experience, you know, wholeness and healing and salvation now and then to set this thing up so that in the future, forever, it's the way that it was supposed to be forever and ever and ever. He's got that plan. And so pro the prophets, they just keep speaking, speaking to that to us. And they, they keep telling us, this is how it is. And, and these are what these, what these prophecies give us the details of, of how this is going to look. And here's Adam and Eve, and, and they feel ashamed, and so he, he clothes them, and then he, he speaks to them about, hey, in the future, I'm going to undo this to them. And then that picture gets passed on to Abel, their son, because it says that Abel, his offering was good to God because he was sacrificing the firstborn of the flock. And so he understood that, that we're sacrificing because someday there's going to be a sacrifice for us. That's passed on to them. And then it's pictured when Abraham takes his son up on the mount because God says, I want to make sure that you love me more than you love your son. And so the son says to his father, his teenager says, Dad, we got everything we need. We just don't have an animal. And where's the animal? And Abraham says, it's not just in that moment. It's in a moment that's coming in a couple thousand years. God will provide the animal. God will provide the sacrifice. That's when it gets pictured again. And then it gets pictured in the sibling rivalry when Joseph is the special one among his brothers. Like Jesus will be the special one among his brothers. And like Jesus, Joseph will be rejected by his brothers and sold away. And yet Joseph will come around and return as their ruler and savior. Just like Jesus so you get these things that are being pictured as they go along. And then everyone in, in the nation of Israel ends up in slavery in Egypt. It seemed like a good, good start at the time, but it ended up as slavery, and it was terrible. And God raised up someone who would deliver them from slavery out into the land of freedom, just like Jesus would. And then he gives Moses this law that we know is the law of Moses has all these sacrifices and those of you that decide, and maybe you're going to sign in a couple weeks, I'm reading through the Bible this year. And that's, that's a wonderful goal. I'm, I'm blessed when people say that. I just worry when you get to Leviticus. You know, you get to Leviticus, and this offering is this and this and this, and this offering, you cut the, this animal, and this part you give the priest, and this part you keep, and this part, and then you got about seven chapters of that. But every part of that is pointing to the sacrifice that eventually is going to come not on the altar, but on a cross. 
And so in the law, you get, you get the Passover, you know, which pictures them back to the land of Egypt when they put their blood on the doorpost so that the death angel would bypass them because that points to Jesus and he wants that remembered every year that you're alive because an animal shed its blood for you just like you'll be alive if you allow the one who shed his blood to be your savior. The day of atonement where all of the sins of that year are put on these two goats and you have the scapegoat that they, they put their heads on and they, they name all the sins of the nation for the year and then someone takes it out into the wilderness and you never see that goat again. What a great picture of your sins huh? for the year. You're never going to see that goat again. You're never going to have a goat run into the village and wonder, is that the goat? Is he back? You're never going to see that one again. And the other one, they're going to sacrifice the day of atonement so they know they're forgiven for another year. And that looks forward to this day when, when the Lamb of God is going to die. And it's not for a year, it's forever. And so Hebrews tells you once for all he's sacrificed. And so you have all these prophecies that are just telling you, I've got a plan, and all these are the pictures of the plan. And all of them are giving you a piece of the details of that plan that's to come. Because God is saying, I'm coming for you, and I'm coming for you with a plan. Not just, I'm showing up in your life and you should think I'm wonderful. I'm coming in your life to make things right if you'll let them be right the way he says. And then you get to, then you get to a gruesome prophecy where he lets you know what this is going to look like. And so you get into Isaiah 53. And Isaiah talks about Jesus. See, Isaiah has these servant songs, they call them, all about Jesus. And this is one, it says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. We thought God was just judging him. We didn't know it was for us. But he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. You're 700 years before Jesus is born. Isaiah will tell you that Jesus was born of a virgin and then he will tell you he would die, you know, he will die in such a way, it says around those verses, you couldn't even tell he was a man will be beaten that badly. All of these things to tell you that, that I have a plan. Every prophecy just shouting out to you, I have a plan. I have a plan. I have a plan to take away sin. And so the first thing that's said about Jesus publicly is in John 1 when John the Baptist sees him and says, he sees Jesus coming toward him. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that he, he has a plan and his plan is to take away sin. And it doesn't matter how much or how little of it you have to take away, he's taking it away. Never to, never to be worried about again. It doesn't have power over you anymore. It doesn't have power to judge you. It doesn't have power to control you anymore. We gotta, we've got to live that out, but he's taken all of that away. That's his plan. He's, he's come to take, to, to take sin away. He's come to make sinners saints. He's come to take whatever label you have put over yourself and rewrite that. He's come to take whatever label people have spoken over you or life has, has put on you. He's taken all of those things and he's rewritten that. So when he says new creation, he lets you know he's just washed that, he's just wiped that whiteboard clean so he can put something else on you. And who hasn't, who hasn't come into the kingdom with those kind of things? Those labels you put about yourself, those labels other people put that you've just embraced as your reality. This whole thing we talk about spiritual warfare, a lot of it is that. What are things that, what are lies that we have embraced, embraced that now have the power to control us? That the, the blood of Jesus is broken down. We just have to believe that he's taken this sinner and he's, he's changed me into a saint who doesn't have to do that anymore. He's taken outsiders and he's made them insiders. And so you watch these prophecies come and he's developing his plan and we're getting towards Jesus and we're getting a coloring in the picture of what Jesus looks like. But along the way, there are some really weird twists to his story. And I think they're in there so that he can let us know he, he's taking outsiders and making them insiders. There's a great place where you, you get a great il illustration of that. And that's in the first chapter of the New Testament. 
If you, you turn to Matthew chapter 1 with me, whether it's your device or your Bible. This is another place, if you're reading through the Bible, you've got to plow through. So full disclosure, a couple years ago I was talking to Pastor Ted and, and uh, we were talking about that and I was reading through the Bible in a year and uh, I said, man, when you get to the genealogies, like you get to, if you make it through Leviticus, First Chronicles is waiting for you. Nine chapters of genealogy. And I remember talking about that, that I said, boy, I keep having to start over because I realize I'm not paying attention. And he said to me these insightful words that set me free. I skimmed over that. I, I, just, I just skimmed that. I said, what? He said, yeah, I skimmed it because really it's names. What, we don't have to memorize these names. And hallelujah, I was set free. I was set free, you know? So... One of the many things I owe you, brother. Yeah. So here you are in a genealogy. Very important to the Jews to be able to try. And Matthew is the gospel written to a Jewish reader. Very important that they know he's a son of David and that he's a son of Abraham. And so you have this genealogy that would be huge to them. We're talking about God's prof- prophetic plan makes, is to make outsiders insiders. And you have twists along the way. So you're a good Jewish reader and you get to verse 3 and it says Judah... Good, he had to be, remember there's a prophecy, he said he's going to be the son of Judah. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Now Tamar is this woman who seduced Judah because he wouldn't protect her as, his, as her father-in-law. And so she seduces him so that she can have a child to protect her husband's name, her dead husband's name. That's very good. Just what's it doing in Jesus' line? And then you keep reading and it tells you in verse 5, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Rahab was this pagan woman that lived in the city of Jericho, made her living by prostituting herself. So again, that's great. Okay, that's great that that she would come to faith in the one true God of, of Israel. Why do we have to name her? Why couldn't we just say, like everybody else, Simon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, who's our next stop in this twisted plan. Ruth is a pagan Moabite. Now, the Moabites, when Israel's on its way to the promised land, wouldn't allow them to cut through their land. And so God says, no Moabite is ever to come to the temple, you know, worship in the temple. You're to keep them out. So Ruth becomes a believer in the one true God. Some of you might have had that in your marriage. You know, wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your God will be my God. Your people, my people. That's Ruth saying, hey, I, I now believe in the one true God of Israel, which is good. But God still has this thing for Moabites, except she's here. And then you have one more. When you get to the famous David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, doesn't even name Bathsheba. And Bathsheba... You know, I think, we, I think we begin to appreciate Bathsheba more and more in the days where, where sexual trafficking is becoming more and more on all of our radar. You know, Bathsheba is exploited by a man in power when she has none. I mean, the king sends for this man's wife, and she really has no options at that, at that moment. And so there's this child, who, that child dies, and then you know, David repents, and they, they marry, and you have Solomon by the wife of Uriah. See, prophetically, here they are, I think, because God is letting us know his heart, and he's letting us know, I take outsiders, and I bring them inside. And so many of you, that was, I think, a major, a major shift in your, in your journey with the Lord, in your relationship with God, was realizing you really could be on the inside. Even in a church family, we watch people kind of edge their way in and, and come to realize that you're no different than the rest of us. Your story might be a little different, might have some different colors to it than ours, but all of us who are insiders, we used to be outsiders. And those of you that are inside the room that feel like you're an outsider, that's you. That's not the gospel. 
because prophecy moves, moves this way along of God saying, I've got a plan, and part of my plan is to make outsiders come into the inside. Part of my plan is to take people who are alienated from me and reconcile them. That's Romans chapter 5. When we were God's enemies, he reconciled us. That's this plan. See, it's not just he predicted that Jesus would be born. There's a plan that reaches way out to all of us. And I felt like that's what God is saying to us this year. It's not just, hey, look at these prophecies. Isn't this, our God knows the future and he arranges it. That's great. It was to step back and realize this plan that he had, this prophetic plan, it's for you. And all the pieces of it, the who, what, where, when, and how, they come together perfectly. So when Paul writes to the Galatians, because they're not so sure about the plan, he says to them, when the fullness of time had come, when it was just the right moment, and God knew it was just the right moment, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. At just the right moment, those of you Thanksgiving cheaters, you know, you got your turkey, and it's got the little pop thing. And you're not doing it the old school way, like our parents did of just, is it done yet? I don't know, is it done? You're waiting for that thing to pop. And at just the right time, it's going to pop, and you're going to look good. It's moist, skin is brown. Hey, just as a side note, this week I actually cooked a turkey on Monday. Uh, if you rub it with butter... You don't get that nice brown, the brown skin. So if you'd rub it with oil, you do. Just so you know that. See, we're full service here. <laughs> At just the right moment, yeah, that thing pops. Or you do the temperature thing, or whatever you do. At just the right moment, things have to come together just right. Everything came together just right. And Jesus was born at that right moment. So he's got a plan, and he's working his plan. Some of you, you're wrestling with, do I give my life to Jesus? Is this a good time? Is the moment just right? It is right, believe me. It is always right. This is the moment to lay me down, like we sang. It is the moment to do that. This moment, whether whatever season you're in, like Pastor Ted was praying over us, whatever that season is, it is the moment that God is, is waiting for with you. He's ready to move you ahead or to do whatever it is, to hold you in the waiting. He's able to do that because he has this plan. This plan that is important for us to know, just to, to wrap up, it can't be stopped. It can't be stopped. And Satan has been trying to stop this plan from the very beginning, from the very beginning. God creates this perfection and this perfect couple and this perfect relationship in a perfect environment, and he steps in and he ruins that. And so God comes in and he covers, their, he covers them up and then he comes up with this plan that one day this is going to happen and then Satan comes and he corrupts the line to, on the way to Noah so things are so bad that God says, I'm just going to start it over. I'm just going to start it over. And so that there can be a, a, there can be a line that's pure. He, do, he has the flood and he saves this one family. And then Satan comes and he enslaves them and he tries to dominate them and he tries to end the to really genocide the Israelites by killing all the boys that are born. And so God raises up these midwives who, who just won't do that. And, and, then he raises, and then he raises up Moses. And then he, he raises up on their, way to, on their way to the promised land. He brings in, Satan brings in other nations to try to blend in and intermarry and, and just blend this people that the Messiah is supposed to come through so that there is no there's no pure Jewish line for him to be born in. And God just keeps stepping in and delivering them and guiding them and raising up kings and the nation gets corrupted and its worship gets so off. And he raises up prophets to call them back. Hey, we've got to come back to what God said. And they have moments of revival as a nation where they finally get it right and they repent and they come back to the roots so that they don't drift too far. And then eventually Satan just takes them out, to, out of the land of Israel and lets other nations dominate them, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And then God says, you can do that, but there's always a remnant. I always have a handful of true, faithful believers. I will always have that. And so you get a nation that's dominated and it's kind of forgotten in, in many ways. They've forgotten the Messiah is even coming. And then Jesus is born. 
And then Satan finds out, you know, Satan steps in through Herod and tries to kill all the boys to and under in that area. And God's ahead of him and sends, sends Joseph and Mary to Egypt. He's constantly tried to stop this and it cannot be stopped. It can't be stopped. And that thing that God's doing in your life, it can't be stopped. It can't be. Not on his side. The reality is the only thing that can stop God is a lack of faith. So Jesus is perplexed, the Gospels tell us, in his hometown. And he could do very few miracles there because of their lack of faith. Think about that. This is Jesus that was doing everything and amazing people everywhere, but not at home because at home it was, isn't that Mary's kid? Isn't that Mary's kid? And they could not get past who they thought he was with who he really was. There's a rich young ruler that's willing to follow Jesus. I'm signing up and Jesus just felt for him, you know what you need to do to do this is you need to let everything go and follow me. And he can't do that and so he misses out on, on what God has for him. God's plan can't be stopped. It's just you're experiencing his plan or me experience his plan. That's what can be stopped. I mean, Pastor Ted spoke to that last week. It's an unstoppable plan. And so we have prophecies. Jesus came the first time and he fulfilled them all. And now we await the prophecies of his next coming. And that is unstoppable. That's the really, with all the chaos that's going on in the country right now, that's my peace of mind is that however this plays out, there's a king who has a plan and it will roll out and, and people will come to Jesus and we will grow and we will be stretched in the way that, that God intended. It's just gone that way the whole time. So God has this plan for you that is unstoppable. So we have to step back and say, okay, am I aware of what his plan for me is? And how much of that is on the radar of my life? Of God, what's your plan? And do I live it out? So I can tell you, I just sense, we sense, there's just so many people, they know the plan it's just not a good time. It's just not convenient. It's just not worth the cost. It's just not whatever. Whatever we fill that in. And, and we miss out. God keeps moving on. We just miss out of what we could experience in the process. What we could experience in our own freedom and our own growth. What we could experience in being used in the lives of other people. However that plays out. He has this plan that he wants to bring to life. But we have to step in tune with that. That begins, of course, just with acknowledging, Jesus, you are the Savior of the world. And with what I, all that I've done, I need to be saved. I need a Savior to take care of my sins and tell me that I'm forgiven and that I can have a new start. That's where that just begins. And it begins that simply. And just whether in a church or in a car or wherever that is, that's where this thing starts. And then just allowing him to transform us with, with where, all of that, where all of that goes and how that works out in a church. And so we have this statement that defines Cottage Hill, that we're trying to cultivate a body, that we're trying to, whether you're our live stream family or in the building family, we're trying to cultivate relationships in this crazy season. We're trying to be equipped with the word, not just smarter, but equipped with it, know how to use it in our lives and other people's lives. We're empowered by prayer because we believe we can't bring what needs to be brought to the table. God has to pour his power out into us so that we make disciples like Jesus called us to make, not just so people have a, a nicer life, but so that we change the world. That's really the mission, and that's what God's plan is all about, and that's what we're, we're a part of, this plan that can't be stopped, this plan that's all tied up in the prophet's candle. So let's pray. I want to just give you a minute just to pray, just you and the Lord, how you need to respond to that. Maybe somebody watching a live stream or, or in the room. Maybe today's the day you need to just give your life to Jesus. Just ask him to be your savior. There's no right words for that. We used to say, oh, pray after me. Pray these words. It's just you admitting you need to be saved and believing that he can save you and believing that his death has, been, has paid the punishment or whatever you've done. 
And maybe you need to come back to that. You just realize, wow, have I gotten away from this plan? And I, God, I just humble myself. I want to stop making excuses. I want to stop putting you off. Just live in the plan. God, thank you that you have grace and mercy and power to do that. Maybe you're just confused about God's plan for you and, and where you fit in that. And he is fine with people just telling him they're confused and just want to know. What pleases the Father is availability. So God, we do. We just marvel at you. I mean, how do we say you know all things? But then to read your word and see this plan from its very beginning, piece together and become reality in Jesus Christ and then become reality in our lives and know that there's a, a reality coming that will just blow all of our minds and be so good forever and ever. We worship you for that good God. Help us to live within that, really. You know the things that get in the way and we just ask you to take them out of the way or ask you to forgive us for keeping them in the way for so long. We pray you use us this week too in the lives of other people that they can come to know you, Jesus, and, and live out this plan. It's so good. Thanks for this season. Just give ourselves to you, God. Use us in it for the lives of others. To the glory of Jesus, that's what we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's stand together. Love this song. I ask the team to sing it as an end. It just looks at the beginning and the end of, of Jesus' power to the plan.
you, Lord. God, I just pray ahead of this week, God, that you would be glorified. God, I pray that we would just keep in the back of our minds that you are coming again soon. And that your promise is sure. That when you said that you were coming back for us, that you meant it. When you said that you would be born of a virgin, that you'd be born in Bethlehem, you meant it. That you would be the propitiation for our sins. You meant it. So Lord, let us worship you this week knowing that you meant it and that you mean it. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.